Chapter 3, Part 1 How the Crime Was Handled by the Police The Confessions Now begin some of the most interesting work connected with the taxicab case, the examination of the first prisoners, which led to confessions, the implication of other guilty persons not yet under arrest, and the voluntary pleas of guilty in court, which saved costly trials in all but Montani's case. This sort of work is familiar under the term of third degree. It is popularly supposed to be accompanied by force and sometimes brutality, and in the wrong hands often is. Commissioner Doherty's experience with a commercial detective agency, however, has led him to develop intelligent methods. The commercial detective organization is none of the authority of an official police force, and at the same time, through its national operations and the general character of its work, deals chiefly with the most accomplished criminals. Therefore, tact and legal subtlety are depended upon in examining suspects, and the commissioner long ago learned to get his results mainly by straight question and answer. He puts his own wits against those of the suspect, backed by experience in many other cases. He has a practical grasp of criminal psychology, as well as many ingenious ways of using evidence to the best purpose, overwhelming the suspect, and breaking down stolidity and deception. Doherty is not only opposed to force in the third degree, but knows that it is of absolutely no use. The first prisoner examined was Eddie Kinsman. When he was brought to police headquarters, Kinsman appeared to be thoroughly satisfied with himself and confident that no policeman would get anything out of him. He proved to be a good-looking young fellow, of athletic build, and by no means a fool. Methods of examination are never twice alike, for they depend upon the case and the suspect. As a rule, however, when the criminal first sits down to answer Commissioner Doherty, he is astonished by that gentleman's apparent lack of guile and ignorance of worldly knowledge. When Doherty composes himself for an inquiry, he is rather a heavy-looking citizen, not unlike a country magistrate, and his first questions, put for the purpose of determining the suspect's character and previous surroundings, usually relate to bald routine matters, such as name, age, residence, education, family, and so on. Gee, thinks the suspect, this guy is the biggest lobster I ever got up against. I wonder how he ever got to be a police commissioner. He must have a strong political pull. Kinsman was ushered into a large, quiet office, where this bureaucratic official began by asking his name, birthplace, and other details. "'Will you kindly stand up a minute while I get your height?' asked the questioner, and Kinsman did so in a patronizing way. Then the dull-looking gentleman turned back Kinsman's coat and looked at the little label sewed in the inside pocket. "'I see that you have been in Chicago recently,' he observed. This suit was made by a tailor there. 
You ordered it February 17th, two days after the robbery. He looked into Kinsman's hat. That was bought in Chicago, too. He examined the label on Kinsman's tie. This was also bought in Chicago. He turned up the label at the back of the neck of the new silk underclothes worn by the prisoner. Those were bought in State Street, Chicago, and from a very good store, too. I know it well. Kinsman now began to be pugnacious and defiant. See here, he said, you must take me for a boob. Yes, I think you are a boob, replied the commissioner. You might as well have made your getaway with a brass band as to take Swede Annie with you to Albany, attracting attention all the way, and then send her back to New York with a hundred dollars to tell the police where you had gone. Suddenly, Lieutenant Riley, personal aide, walked into the commissioner's office carrying a cheap article of millinery, a shabby black velvet hat with a row of little red roses across the front. Commissioner Doherty apparently grew very angry. "'What do you mean by bringing that thing in here now?' he exclaimed. "'I am not ready for that. Take it away.' This shot had been previously arranged, of course, but Riley pretended to be injured when called by his superior. "'Cripes!' exclaimed Kinsman. "'Annie's old hat. How did you get that so quick?' "'Oh, that is only one thing we've got on you,' replied the commissioner. "'We know that you went to Peekskill in a taxicab with Annie and Splaine on the afternoon of the robbery. We know that you took train 13 to Albany, and where you stopped that night, and where you bought Annie's new hat, and how much you paid for it and what train you took to Chicago Friday noon. Suppose you tell me something more about your movements. Kinsman became scornful. If you know all that, he said, maybe you know more about where I went and what I did than I do myself. So what would be the use of me telling you anything? While certain people were being found outside, the commissioner worked upon the prisoner along another line. Enough of Kinsman's personality was now disclosed to show that he was vain and egotistical. This side of his nature was therefore fed with flattery. He was assured that the taxicab robbery had been a wonderful stick-up. Everybody in New York had been astonished. The whole country was talking about it and about him. He must be an awfully bright, cunning fellow to have planned and carried out such a piece of crime. Kinsman warmed up genially under this admiration, and seemed to be more confident than ever that so shrewd a young man as himself would have little difficulty in fooling the police. But presently self-satisfaction was subjected to shock after shock. Detectives were bringing in Montani, Myrtle Hoyt, Rose Levy, Mrs. Sullivan, the landlady with whom Kinsman had lived, and her housekeeper. Jess Obrazzo was under arrest. Kinsman's brother was there for examination, 
and Inspector Hughes and Lieutenant Riley were bringing in startling intelligence every few minutes. The housekeeper was ushered in and told how Kinsman had given her five dollars from a huge roll of bills before leaving for Peekskill. Commissioner Waldo came in and sat while Mrs. Sullivan told her what she knew about her late lodger. Kinsman's brother gave information about the former's movements from the time he had arrived in Boston until he brought him to New York to have a good time, and Kinsman knew that at the home of his parents in Boston the police would surely find money in the original wrappers of the bank. The prisoner was put under pressure to explain how a man like himself, known to be working as a waiter in a cheap resort, could suddenly have come into possession of such sums. Statements from the women in the case had been secured and were produced, and finally Kinsman was brought to detailed admissions, one by one. He agreed that it was true he had gone to Peekskill in a taxicab with Annie and Splain, that he had gone to Albany, had bought Annie a hat there, had gone to Chicago, and so forth. Opportunities were given him to see Montani and Jess under arrest. Nothing but the truth was told him, yet by degrees he was led to see himself surrounded on all sides by evidence and confessing accomplices. At last he broke down completely, his vain self-confidence destroyed, and made a detailed confession. Kinsman's story brought up fresh circumstances and new actors in the taxicab case. He told how he had come to New York nine months before to have a good time and make money, and how, after going penniless and hungry, and getting a few dollars for taking part in a boxing match, he had become a waiter at the Nutshell Café. There he soon made the acquaintance of criminals, meeting Gene Splaine, Dutch Keller, Joe the Kid, Scotty the Lamb, and other characters who were afterward to assist in the taxi robbery. There he also met Swede Annie, and became her sweetheart, and finally Jess Albrazzo, a dark little Italian who seemed to exert marked influence over all the others. It was from Jess that Kinsman first heard about the plan to rob a taxicab carrying money to a bank. This swell job was discussed, and Jess told him he had a friend named Montani who carried the bank's cash and would cooperate in stealing it. The job would be easy because Montani would run the cab through a side street and the only guard was an old man and a boy neither of them armed. One Sunday night, two weeks before the crime, Jess took Kinsman and other accomplices over the route, after all had drunk themselves into optimistic mood, and pointed out the bank from which the money was drawn, the streets through which Montani would run, the place where the gang could board the cab, and the point at which they could leave it and escape uptown. Details were discussed. There was a difference of opinion as to methods, 
and the plotters parted that night with the understanding that each would submit his own ideas of how the robbery could be most effectively and safely carried out. Eventually there was a definite agreement as to boarding the cab, preventing an outcry, making the getaway, and splitting up the money. According to Montani's information, the bank messengers usually carried between $75,000 and $100,000. When the day for the robbery had been set, word suddenly came that there would not be so large a sum. This was disappointing, but the gang decided to put their project through nevertheless. Kinsman was busy at the café, where he worked until four o'clock on the morning of February 15th, and Dutch called for him several times, asking if he was going to lay down on the job. Finally, Kinsman got away, went to a room in a lodging house taken by Dutch, and found the gang all there, smoking and drinking. At five o'clock they all went to sleep. At eight everybody was awakened. Dutch and Splain took blackjacks, and offered Kinsman a revolver, which he refused, saying he could take care of himself with his hands, being a boxer. There were six in the party, Kinsman, Dutch, Splain, Joe the Kid, Jess, and Scotty the Lamb, whose part was to stumble in front of Montani's cab at the place selected for the boarding, and thus give the chauffeur a colorable reason for slackening speed if eyewitnesses afterward called his honesty into question. The gang had breakfast in a cheap restaurant, stopped for a drink at the saloon of Jimmy the Push in Thompson Street, where the booty was to be divided, and proceeded downtown, after parting with Jess. The latter was the organizer, and took no part in the robbery. As he explained, he was known as a friend of Montani's, and wanted to arrange so that he could prove an alibi if suspected, proving that he had not been near the scene of the crime when it was committed. At that saloon they had met a trio of Italian criminals known as the Three Brigands, who said they were not to take part in the robbery, but would be on hand to see that it was vigorously put through. Arrived upon the ground at Church Street and Trinity Place, Splain and Kinsman waited on the west side of the thoroughfare, while Dutch and Joe the Kid stood on the opposite side. Scotty the Lamb posted himself fifty feet off. As Montani's cab came speeding along, Dutch raised his hat as a signal. Scotty the Lamb did not have time to step in front of the vehicle before it slackened, and the robbers were aboard. Dutch opened one door and struck the old bank teller, Wilbur Smith, and Joe the Kid boosted Splain in on the other side, where he assaulted young Wardle. Kinsman mounted the seat beside Montani, and the latter put on full speed, telling Kinsman to point his finger at his side as though he had a revolver. The cab slipped past trucks and dodged pedestrians. Kinsman said he seemed to see policemen everywhere, and was dazed when the vehicle stopped at Park Place and Church Street. 
All the criminals got off there, Dutch lugging the brown bag containing the money. Splane and Dutch were both covered with the bank guard's blood. Taking kinsmen, they jumped aboard a streetcar. It was crowded. Several passengers noticed the bloody men, but were told that there had been a fight and the occurrence was not reported to the police. After riding two or three blocks, they got off, boarded an elevated train, rode to Bleecker Street, and went to a back room in Jimmy the Push's saloon, where the money was to be divided. Here they found Jess and the three brigands, and the latter now set up a claim for a share of the booty. Matteo, leader of the trio, pulled out a revolver, and there was a discussion. Finally, the bag was opened and found to contain $25,000. There were three packages of $5,000 each and one of $10,000. Matteo grabbed the latter package, saying that his gang was to get $3,000 apiece, and that the odd $1,000 would go for fall money to get Malloy out of jail in Brooklyn. The robbers then divided the remainder, just taking $3,000 for himself and another $3,000 for Montani, Splane getting $3,000, Kinsman 2750 Joe the Kid 250 and Scotty the Lamb nothing. Kinsman then told how he had called for Swede Annie and left town in a taxicab, going as far as Peekskill, to avoid the police at the Grand Central Station. End of Section 8